from the prayer to start the day, or thank you for protection. The Lord please heal and the go with them. The I can't do this alone, and the may you get the glory. We pray many prayers throughout the day. We pray because God is God. He is over all things, whether dangerous or unanswered or constant or mountain moving. Listen in as we get real about honest prayer. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. Um, if you haven't noticed, I haven't been here for about four weeks, and um, I'm seeing. Uh, see, I, I've got to say this: that one of the most delightful things in coming back is the fellowship. <clears throat> and I, um, if if nothing else, one of the things that I think Karen and I both missed, perhaps the most, is the actual being in service. And to be able to communicate on a one face-to-face, one-to-one sort of level, and to be able to enjoy the fellowship. And so, I know if you're watching online, <coughs> excuse me, if you're watching online, you miss that. And I want to encourage you to end up being in service at some point. We, I think, we, we've got a culture where it's easier to stay at home, and we've developed that. We can blame COVID, but I think it's always been there. And COVID gave us an excuse. And I think we need to recognise that being together is so important. It's lovely to see some of you have been away while I've been away and you've not missed me. Some of you have been here and not missed me. Uh, So that's okay. It's lovely to be back. And we're going to finish off today. It's just been a blessing. Um, We went to Airlie Beach for a couple of weeks. We I have watched all the sermons that you've been watching over the past four weeks. Uh, We spent... A couple of weeks in Airlie, we went to Baptist Church in Airlie, had a delightful time there with people. And um, the last two weeks, we've been watching online live as it's been happening. And it's just been lovely to keep up with that. And Jasmine has done a wonderful job in this prayer series. And today, I want to bring this to a close. Last 24 hours, or the, from Friday night through to 6 o'clock or 6.30 last night, we had our 24 hours of prayer and fasting across the church. <clears throat> and I, I wonder, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but we, I, I wonder whether we are really passionate about prayer. Even though I know we've been talking about it for the past four weeks, and we should be talking about it every week, I, I wonder whether we're passionate about that. And today's message really should pick that up. And I want you to, and in in the words of Jesus, if you have ears, listen, not just hear. Because I think today, as we bring this to a close, I'm hoping that today might bring all of the past four weeks, the honest prayer and the dangerous prayers and the unanswered prayers and the constant prayers back into what we've called today mountain moving prayers. And so I'm looking forward to sharing this with you and, and, and to be honest, uh, a little nervous in, in some respects because I think some of the things that we're going to deal with, I'm constantly at work in my own life with. 
And so I feel like I, I'm, I'm saying these things to you or could be saying these things to you today and you're looking at me and saying, well, you don't do that. And that's true. It could be true in some respects. I'm a work in progress and so are you. And we are working together on this and that's what's so wonderful about being in the family of God is that we can work together. We can bless one another. Hebrews 10.25, it's not on the screen, it's nowhere except in your Bibles and in your mind perhaps, but Hebrews 10.25 says, do not neglect the meeting together. All the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. And if you want to go to, to Luke 21 or if you want to go to Matthew 24, you'll discover some things that Jesus said in those passages, what's going to happen in the last days. And as you read through them, you think, that's now. All the more, as we see the signs of the times, we should be meeting in person, meeting together to bless one another and edify one another. That's why, again, if you're online, this is where we should be together as much as you're possible. If you can't, that's why the online's there. And we want to be a blessing to you, and I pray that you can be a blessing to others as you sit in your lounge rooms, as you sit wherever. And what Karen and I, the first week of our holidays, we, we sat in our tent. Uh, watching uh, Pastor Jasmine start this series off. So I, I just, it's just a blessing to be here today. So thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your uh, integrity and looking after uh, each other as we've gone through this. So as we bring this to a close today, I want us to recognize, and I think this is not new to any of you, prayer is probably the primary way that we would say that we would communicate with God. It's not the only way we communicate, but I think in all fairness, it's probably the, the most pri or the primary way that we would communicate with God. Agree? I think most of us understand that. And I think because it's the primary way that we communicate with our Heavenly Father, the Creator of the universe, we shouldn't just desire to pray, but we really ought to be passionate about seeking to pray effectively. How do we come before our Heavenly Father? How do we become before the Creator of all things and communicate in a way that He wants us to communicate? And I'm confident that if we were to run a survey of every person that Let's call ourselves Christians for a moment, but of everyone today asking if we were content with our present form of prayer life, almost every one of us would say no. We were, we're all in the same boat with that. We, we all would say that our prayer life could be better. It doesn't matter what level of prayer you're at. It would be overwhelmingly pointing to the fact that almost every single one of us would admit that we could pray more effectively. And with that in mind, I want us to grow. And, and it doesn't matter where you are on that continuum, whether you're, you're way down here and just beginning the idea of prayer, or you've been a little bit more in, this, in, in your Christian walk and you feel like you're a little bit more mature. It doesn't ma matter where you are on that line. If we are to grow, we're looking at what the next step is for each of us.
And if you and I could grow by just one step, we've got to win. And so don't think that you've got to mimic anybody. All you need to do and all I need to do is look at where I am and what does God want me to do and move into the very next step. And, and, and on honesty, in, all the, in the sense of transparency, I would say that my ability to pray effectively is still my number one struggle. I struggle with that. It's not something, you know, I'm the pastor and it's supposed to be something that the pastor is supposed to do regularly and, and easily and well. I struggle with that. And I want you to hear that because I don't want you to feel embarrassed because you can't pray or don't pray or you feel like you jumble up your words from time to time. I still feel those things at times. And to stand before you this morning and talk about mountain moving prayers, every one of the points that I'm going to share with you, I am dealing with. And I want you to feel that if that's you, and I think most of you will feel the same, don't feel like you're going through this alone. That's why it's important to be together and encourage one another. And that's one of the reasons why I try and make it to the prayer meetings every week. Not so that I can show how spiritual I am, but because I need practice. And I need help and I need encouragement and I need the blessing of other people to be praying and we pray for each other. Prayer meetings, I think, across the whole world. Well, perhaps not across the world, the unpersecuted world, let's put it that way. The Western world, the prayer meetings are probably the least well attended of all meetings in the church. And they shouldn't be. And so that's, that really is one of the reasons why I, I try and get to all of the prayer meetings or the prayer meetings that we have in our church. And I want to encourage you to do the same, not because you're so spiritual or not because you of any other reason other than it's good to be together. And we can all do with a dose of prayer with each other from time to time. In fact, every day. And to have the encouragement from one another that will hold me accountable in those times of prayer. To know that they're on. And if I don't turn up, the accountability is for me thinking, I'm going to have someone ask me, where were you, Pastor On? And I don't want to say, oh, I just decided today it was easier to stay in bed. Or I had some other more important things. I don't get to all of them because there are things where I'm not even here. But I want to encourage you to do that. And so let me preface today's message with, with this statement. I know that we have spent the last four weeks talking about prayer and the importance of prayer. We constantly encourage you to be at prayer meetings and all of those sorts of things. We're doing that constantly. But, but... If it is our end game to pray better, if having a bigger prayer meeting is our goal, we've missed the point entirely. I don't want you to think, oh, well, Pastor Ron needs us to be there to, to make a big prayer meeting. If you think that, if that's your goal, if it's my goal, we've missed the point. Our mission that we have been given as a church 
is to make disciples who make disciples. And history has shown us right throughout all of church history that any group that comes together under a non-missional purpose, that we come together without the focus on going out, without the purpose of disciple-making, any group that focuses around a non-missional group, such as a prayer meeting, even a small group, never ends up becoming missional. If our focus is internal, we will remain there. But if our focus is going out, if our focus is on discipleship, if our focus is on seeing people come into the kingdom of God, we will also do prayer meetings and we will also have group meetings and they will grow because the mission of the church is to make disciples and I, we need to understand that. Whatever group that you are part of, whether it's this church, another church or whatever, if it's not missional, if it's not about growing and going, then we are going to find that that's always going to be the focus. We're, we're going to find ourselves becoming more and more internalized and that's not the mission of the church. So coming together for the sake of coming together isn't the goal. Coming together to make the church filled up with people isn't the goal. Coming together so that Pastor Ron feels good about it isn't the goal. It's a great goal, but it's not the goal. When we come together, we come because we want to see the kingdom of God grow. We want to see God impact this community. So prayer is not the end game for us, but it is an important and it is vital and it has, it's the ingredient that we can know and do the will of God in the work that he has called us to do. So today I want to say, share with you some spiritual principles for mountain moving prayer that give us some practical ways that that we can not just pray, but pray in a way that God says he will respond. And you know the passage of scripture we're about to read. Jerem, uh, 2 Chronicles 7. I want to start at verse 12 just through to 15. And you will recognize verse 14, I trust. <coughs> Excuse me, let me get a drink. 2 Chronicles 7, 12 to 15. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer. We'll come back to that. And we have, and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wickedness, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. All right, just to give you a little background, 
Solomon, this is, talk, this is in the time of Solomon, he had just built the very first temple for Israel to God, for God. It was the most elaborate and sophisticated building around the place. And dare I say, if it was in our culture, it probably still would be. Everything was coated in gold or silver. It was made from bronze or, or some timber. Some, there was some timber stuff, but everything was just covered with gold primarily. The walls, the ceilings, the articles that were used were made from pure gold. It was magnificent. And the scriptures tell us that there was so much bronze used in the, in the creation of this temple that it was not even able to be weighed or counted. There was so much. In fact, the scriptures also tell us that the amount of silver that Solomon had used in there had made silver as worthless as the stones on the pavement. It was just unbelievable what was put into this temple in monetary terms. And so he'd finished the temple. Solomon had built this temple. And at this time, he'd finished it, and they were dedicating the temple to the Lord. And in chapter 6, if you read back in the chapter previous, 2 Chronicles 6, we, uh, um, Solomon prays this prayer to God from the temple. And he asks God some things. He he acknowledges God's faithfulness in preparing and, present and giving them everything that they have. But he asks God something. He says, God, forgive us of the things that have done, we've done that hinder you hearing our prayers. He asks them to, for, to forgive them if they're unwilling to forgive their neighbours. If they're unwilling to forgive each other, forgive us, Father, and hear our prayers. He asks, he asks them to forgive them if they sin against their neighbor, but then repent and come back to him. Forgive us, he asks. He asks God to forgive them if they sin and are defeated, and then because of their sinfulness, they're defeated in battle, and then they come back to God. Solomon says, hear our prayer and forgive us. He asks if they sin so that God, if, if they sin and in that sinfulness or the God holds back the rain or he brings pestilence and other disease stuff across their land, he says, if, we, if that happens, if we turn back to you, hear our prayer, answer us and forgive us. That's chapter 6. The list goes on and on. And God reveals that he's heard that prayer from Solomon because what he does is he sends down fire from heavens and consumes the burnt offering that they had laid out ready for him. Sounds a bit like Acts chapter 2 in my mind. And it's after this that God appears again to Solomon and tells him the things that we read just before in 2 Chronicles 7. And the reality is, if you go through Solomon's prayer in chapter 6, you'll find that Solomon's prayer followed exactly what God said. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wickedness, then I'll hear their prayer and I'll heal their land. That's exactly what Solomon had just done. And it's these four things that I want to share with you and make them the points or the principles 
that we can look at if we want or expect God to hear our prayers, if we expect our prayers to start moving mountains, then we need to recognize that God has put in place some principles that we need to apply to our lives. And the first one is humble ourselves. Now, that's a bit of an oxymoron. I'll explain why an oxymoron. I'll let you figure that one out yourself. What does humbling ourselves mean? And the first thing I think we need to understand is that while we are asked or told to humble yourself or humble ourselves, we don't teach ourselves to be humble. You can't teach yourself, I'm going to be humble from now on. There's no three-point, five-point plan that we can put in place for becoming the, the most humble person in the next four weeks, five, six months, 12 months, whatever. Self-humbling is not something that we initiate in our own lives. It's something that we receive. We receive it as God sends his humbling upon us. He humbles us through things, events, circumstances that come into our life. He brings things into our life so that our response can be to humble ourselves. So when God holds back the rain, we can humble ourselves because that's a response to what God is doing. So whatever circumstances that you are involved in or going through as an individual, or as a family or whatever in your life at this moment in time, maybe God's first and primary desire for us is to humble ourselves. In the case of Solomon and the Israelites, they recognized that they had turned away from God. And he promised them that if they turned away from him, I'm going to withhold the rain. I'm going to bring disease upon you. Their crops are going to be destroyed through insects and locusts and drought. And so the invitation to humble ourselves doesn't come in this vacuum but through our first being humbled. And it comes from God. And it's our willingness to acknowledge and respond to God's humbling that God is seeking that initiates our willingness or not to humble ourselves. We have a choice at that point. God can send all these things on us and we can be very hard-hearted and say, you know what, we're just gonna work harder, dig deeper, Stand it, step it out, and we're going to work really through this. And we can question all that. And I wonder whether as a nation we're a little bit like that at the moment. We, we worry about all these things that we label now, call them what we like. I believe God wants us to come back to him to humble ourselves as a nation. Humble ourselves as church, his people. And when God calls us to humble ourselves... It comes as a response to the trials and the struggles that he allows into our life that he may have either come brought internally or externally to us. James deals with this in James 4. He says, you lust and you don't have. 
You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight war, uh, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And before you think about it, if you don't think that James is talking about being humble, that's verse 2 in James chapter 4. Then in verse 6, read on because he says this, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, he says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Hezekiah, perhaps one of the greatest kings other than David that Israel had, recognized God's wrath on the nation as king. He saw this as a response to his own pride and Hezekiah's own pride. In 2 Chronicles 32, it says, Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Why didn't the Lord's wrath come upon them? Because Hezekiah humbled himself. So 2 Chronicles 7.14 begins by saying that God says to respond, we need to posture ourselves towards humility, recognize our utter unworthiness of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-holy God. There are some things that we can do to humble ourselves under the authority of God's work. And humbling ourselves comes as a result of our obedience to doing what God has called us to do. So when he says, if my people will humble themselves, it's saying, if my people will just plain old obey me, come before me with a, with a soft heart, and not this stubborn hard-heartedness, not thinking that we've got it all together. And God has put these things in our lives so that we might humble ourselves with prayer, desperately coming to him in prayer, humbling ourselves in the fasting. I don't know how many of you fasted and how much of us just took no food or whatever we did. But all of these things have a place in our overall response to what God will do for our prayers. But first and foremost, we need to know that humbling ourselves is God's, it's initiated by God and our responsibility then is to obey him. Secondly, pray. Pray with passion and fervor. Passion for the work of God and for his kingdom ought to drive our prayer life. Our passion for God and his work ought to drive our lifestyle. The opposite of Passion is lukewarmness. And the reality is that the moment that we lose our passion or zeal for God, we lose our vision and our perspective for what God wants for us. 
The moment our passion and zeal gets thrown out for what God wants to do or what God is doing or our passion and zeal to do God's work disappears, our vision and perspective changes and is taken away from what God wants us to do. Our prayers will be effective when our heart is right. Satan knows this as well. He knows that when your heart is right with God, God responds. And there is nothing that Satan likes better than to draw us away from our passion to Christ and become this apathetic Christian, lukewarm Christian. One definition of lukewarmness is that I read during preparation for this is uh, serving God in such a way as to not offend the devil. I thought that's good. Are we serving God in such a way that we don't want to offend the devil? Guard the flame within you. The passion. What is your passion right now? The zeal of God is a should be a consuming fire within us. We need to guard it ferociously so that it, it realizing that it's it's the enemy's target. The passion that you have for Jesus Christ seems to, I don't know, I know I do know why, but it seems to, the longer we are in as a Christian, dissipate. It shouldn't do, but it does. Apathy isn't a state of mind. It's a state of heart. It's, an, it's here. We have an apathetic heart. And to keep our heart soft and focused will mean that God is able to speak into our life and we can hear him and he will respond to us. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah was frustrated that no one, that as he prophesied to the nations of Israel and, and Judah, it, no one was listening. In fact, he was told that was his mission. Go and do something and no one's going to listen to it. But he was frustrated about that. He was being mocked for his faith. Even young children would mock, it, mock him because of the way he looked. He was being ridiculed for his prophecies against Israel. And God had spoken to him, told him what to say, but no one really wanted to listen to him. And so he got to the point where he said this, he said, I will not mention of him, I'll not make mention of him. I'm not going to say anything to anyone else about him. I'm just going to shut down, nor speak any more in his name. I'm over it. But then he says this, but, in, but his word, God's word was in my heart. It was like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it back and I could not hold it back. It just wouldn't stay inside. And when we're passionate about the work of God, it burns in us and it drives us to be onto our knees in prayer for the lost, for, for his kingdom. It comes as we become aware of our sinfulness and our unholy attitudes that we have. So that when we pray, we, we pray with conviction. 
because of the passion and the fervor that we need to be doing that with. We pray with fervor. And when we pray with fervor, we live with fervor. John Wesley said this, if I had 300 men who feared nothing but God, hated nothing but sin, and were determined to know nothing among men but Jesus Christ and him crucified, I would set the world on fire. Passion and fervor. And when God tells Solomon that he needs to humble himself and he needs to pray, that's what he's talking about. James reminds us in James 5, he says, confess your trespasses or your sins to one another and pray for one another that you will be healed. The effective and fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much <clears throat> or is powerful and effective. I think the NIV uses that term. This is the type of prayer that shakes the demonic gates of of your life and my life and of this world, the demonic strongholds that keep us and keep others out of the kingdom. It demolishes the, prince, the spiritual principalities and powers that are standing against God. The prayer, the powerful prayer of a righteous person, a righteous man, demolishes Satan's work. Fervency reaches to the very throne of God. And when God says pray, that's what we should be doing. The question we may need to ask ourselves, are we really serious about our prayer? Are we praying with, with passion and fervor? And if we're being changed ourselves is the, is the way that we know that. If, if you don't know whether you're fervent and passionate in your prayer time, look inward and say, have I changed? Am I ch being changed? Is the Holy Spirit beginning to do a deep work in me so that I'm growing toward Christ-likeness? We may even at times begin our prayer life or our prayer time not even thinking about our needs to change. But God changes us regardless when we pray with fervor and passion. It's like Isaiah who begins, Isaiah 6, when he has this vision of God in his throne room and his train fills the temple. He realises that he needs to change himself because who am I to stand before the mighty king? I'm as but a filthy rag. He realises that he needs to change himself and then God brings the change and he will bring the change to you and I as we come before him and realize that we really, our, our filthy thoughts and attitudes and lifestyle needs to be dealt with. Again, if our prayer is earnest and fervent, we will be changed. Thirdly, God seek or seek God's face. <clears throat> What does that mean? Well, I want you to hear this because we can seek God's face by turning away from our sin and turning toward God through prayer. 
and by spending time in his word. We seek God's face when we put aside our sinful attitudes, sinful desires and turn our heart towards the things of God. We seek God's face when we put aside our sinful behaviour and and turn towards the things that God wants us to be turning towards. And when we pray, what are we praying for? Are we praying for God's will or our will to be done? If we desire to pray mountain-moving prayers in our own lives, we must also be careful to examine the heart, our own hearts before we pray. Ask God to examine our hearts. Ask yourself or talk to yourself and say, what is there in my life that I need to deal with before I even come before Almighty God? Recognising our sinful attitude and bringing that to him. Are we holding on to bitterness or unforgiveness from other people or, or who might have hurt you, rightly or wrongly? Are we holding on to those things? It's turning away from sin and toward God that will help us seek his face. And what does that mean to seek his face? The Hebrew word for face that's used in the Old Testament is often translated as presence. So when we seek the face of God, we, we are seeking his presence in our life. Psalm 105 says, seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face evermore. And the fact is that even if we have not abandoned God altogether, even if our desire is to faithfully serve and follow him every single day of our life, there are times when we neglect to pursue him. Some reason, it just seems to be off we go down this rabbit path, Warren, whole thing. There are times when we neglect to pursue him, when we neglect God's face. His holy character is often obscured by our human condition and our fleshly desires. And we, we do that so easily and so commonly to do that you know how many times have we just you know family become more important than anything else work becomes more important than anything else sport becomes more important than anything else our passion our fervor seeking God's face the Lord desires to be our constant companion in every experience that you have in your life and my life he wants us to know him he wants us to understand his ways and his purposes. And the scriptures tell us in James 4 that if we draw near to him, we can draw, he will draw near to he, us. Come close to God, James 4 says. We read it before. And God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Guard, or purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Seeking God's face means that our desire is to be knowing his character and have his character reflected in our character and wanting him, his, his presence more than any other thing that this world could ever offer and more than any other thing that perhaps he needs to give us. His desire is that our character aligns with his character. Our character is shaped 
more about by whom we love than what we believe. And if we love things higher, more than we love God, our character will display that. That's what will come out when the pressure comes on. Our true character rises to the surface. And when our character aligns with God's character, because of our love for him, when we are put under pressure and we come before him in prayer, our prayers will be powerful and effective. Turn or seek God's face and turn from sin is the fourth one. And I don't need to tell you this. We're all born with a sin nature. We inherited that from Adam and Eve. Even the flood of Noah's, Noah's time did not do anything to eradicate the sin nature from our DNA. Our sin DNA came from Adam and Eve. Adam. It was nothing to do with, well, I guess it was something, but it wasn't primarily Eve that was the problem. Remember, where did Eve come from? Adam. Who was in charge of all of those things? Adam. Who didn't stop his wife who was standing right beside him? Adam. Who failed to take responsibility for the actions of his wife? Adam. Men, we have a responsibility in our culture. And we need to own that. We can't just blame our upbringing, blame our somebody else or whatever. We have a responsibility. As in Isaiah it's written, it's your sins that cut you off from God. Because of your sins, he's turned away. And he won't listen anymore. So we naturally sin. We naturally have eyes turned away from God. But that doesn't mean that God has always got his eyes turned away from us. In fact, he is constantly at work at building the relationship back up. He wants to, for us to see and recognize him. He wants a relationship that's real and personal. And in the Old Testament, God provided them with the law. But the law had no means of doing away with sin. What the law did was to make us accountable for our sin. Because the scriptures tell us, in, in Romans 5, Paul says, People sinned even before the law was given, but it was not counted as sin because there was not any law yet to break. So when God gave the law, he held us accountable. And the law holds us accountable. Old Testament. God's grace entered in through Jesus Christ. We entered a new era. But because of the law, we know what sin is and what sin isn't. If you don't know you're doing something wrong, it's kind of still wrong. But until you become aware of it, God actually says to us, we need to, as soon as we become aware of it, confess that to him. Because we don't know any difference from that point. 
And while the, the law held us accountable, it did nothing for doing away with our sin DNA. It was, there was a constant need in the Old Testament for a sacrificial presentation to God for the forgiveness of sin. So God sent his son into the world as a sacrificial gift for us to deal with the effects of sin. A once and for all payment. He came as the pure lamb sacrifice. He came to do what the Old Testament could not do. He came as a human being. An animal sacrifice was never going to deal with the DNA or the sin nature. But when Jesus came as a human being, he dealt with the sin nature for us. It's why God sent his son, Jesus Christ. John 3 reminds us, you know this verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. So all of those who repent of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Salvation is by God's grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way we can come into his presence and be sin free. Acts 2 says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the baptism for the remission of sin so that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The inference there is that with, without that, without the remission of sin, the Holy Spirit can't do its work, do his work. He sent Jesus Christ as a way to provide us for to deal with the sin that we've been dealt with because of the wages of sin is eternal separation from God. Romans 6.23. Death is the result or said to be the result of sin. What's death? In the Bible, death never means the cessation of life. It doesn't mean that life finishes. That's not what the biblical definition of death is. Death is spoken in the scriptures in two different ways. There's a physical death and there is a spiritual death. And our physical death does not mean we cease to exist. What it does mean that we, we, our, our spirit is separated from our body. And the body fails anymore to have any life. But we go on. The spirit is separated and continues on. The spiritual death is the separation of God or the sinner from God. So when we're spiritually separated, we, we separate ourselves from God and we do our own thing. And both are a result of sin. And at the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually. They separated themselves from God. And they, they, they eventually died physically when their spirit was released from their body, but they died spiritually the moment they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Can we do away with sin? Yes, we can. There are two instances in the New Testament that Jesus told someone, go and sin no more. One was an invalid at the pool of Beth Bethesda 
and the other was a woman caught in adultery. Both times he, he, he did what he needed to do with them and said, go and sin no more. When Jesus told them to sin no more, he was not speaking about this sinless perfection that they're never going to think, do or act in a way that's perfect all the time. But what he was talking about was making a choice in your life. Go and sin no more means to make a choice to refuse to live a sinful lifestyle. Choose life. And we all have that choice. The only way that we can faithfully live like that is to continually give our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why is this so important in this prayer series? Because if we are not wanting to see God, if we are wanting to see God answer our prayers, if we are wanting to pray prayers that move mountains, impact our life and the life of everybody else, we have got to have the right heart in order for God to hear and answer and respond to the prayers that we pray. That's why God said, if we humble ourselves, if we pray with passion and fervor, if we seek his face, if we turn from our wickedness, our sinful behavior, then God will hear our prayers and he'll answer them. Sin divides our loyalty. Sin causes us to trust in the things of this world. Sin redirects us away from God and towards unrighteous things, onto things that are ungodly, and, and our loyalty is divided between God and the world, or the world and God. Put it in the right order. And that's why the, the key to effective mountain-moving prayer is having an undivided heart toward God. A heart that's filled with passion and fervor. A heart that has God's word hidden in it so that sin cannot come in. David's prayer prayed exactly that prayer in Psalm 119. He says, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word has prevented sin from coming in. And my prayer is that through this series that we will learn to pray honestly. That we'll be willing to pray dangerous prayers. Even when God seems silent, we won't stop praying. We'll know that God desires us to come before him and we need to take, my prayer is that we would take every step necessary for us to approach God in a way that we will be able to pray effectively mountain-moving prayers. Not just the big things that everyone sees, but even in your, your own life. Things that seem unmovable in your life at the moment. You see no way through. We humble ourselves, we pray, we seek his face, we turn from our sin and our wickedness. God will hear our land. He will hear our prayers. It won't always be easy, but the rewards will be significant. 
And as I, as I challenge you today to humble yourselves, pray. Pray with fervor and passion. Seek his face every opportunity, every moment that you get. Turn from your wickedness. Put on, put, put our, let's put ourselves in the best possible spiritual posture for God to be able to respond. I ask and think about what difference might that make to the darkness of this world that we live in. Pray. Seek his face. Humble ourselves. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us everything we need in order to come to you. You've provided everything that we need to know you. And today, I would ask that you would consume us with a passion to know you and to serve you. A passion to, to embrace your word into our life, to seek your face, a desire that we might be willing to, to do away with our stubborn, hard heart and to humble ourselves. A willingness to, to turn away from your face and away from sin and turn toward you and righteousness. And no matter where we are today, Father, in our walk with you, I pray that the next step might be the step that we're willing to take. As small as that might seem in our own lives, help us to move forward, not backward. Help us to go with confidence and take that step of faith, knowing that you are desiring a life with us, a relationship with us that's real and personal. So may your kingdom come and may your will be done here in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.